The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. And sponsored by March Communications, connecting innovation and people. Welcome to the Echo Chamber. This is Arun Sudhaman from the Homes Report, and we're recording this today in Hong Kong. It is the day before the 2017 Sabre Awards Asia Pacific and Innovation Summit, and we're joined by two guests. We're very lucky. So we've got Homes Report chair and founder, Paul Holmes. Paul, welcome. Hi. Thanks very much for inviting me. <laughs> well, I didn't invite you, but anyway. And, of course... <laughs> you invited me to the podcast. <laughs> oh, did I? Mm, maybe. And we have David Brain, formerly of Edelman, formerly um, APAC Mia CEO until a few months ago, looking very bronzed and very fit. Um, you appear to be enjoying your life post-agency. Ah, oh, there's life after agency, I mean, I can tell you. And what is that? What does that life look like? A um, bit more peace, less traveling, um, working with a couple of startups. Um, probably the most interesting one is... Uh, uh, a new media startup in New Zealand. It's kind of like a, a New Zealand equivalent of Vice. Mm -hmm. um, sort of eight to twelve now, I think. Very talented journalists who are trying to find a business model that allows them to do the sort of writing that they want to do, and um, maybe mm. have uh, security into the future with a you know uh, rather than the old business model. Which, have uh, you found this great. business model? <laughs> Well, they're using sponsorship at the moment, and oh. um, they're profitable. Um, it's a particular form of market they've got down there. But yes, yes, we think we've uh, we've got something that's working. Not sure if it'd work anywhere else, oh, okay. but it's working there. Yeah, we should discuss that at some <laughs> point, maybe. Um, but we'll we'll talk a little bit more about what you're doing, uh, and in particular your thoughts about the um, the PR agency sector, which you know inside out. Um, but before that, I think we have to talk. Uh, about an agency called Bell Pottinger. Uh, of course, it's a, it's a story that has dominated not just the industry media, but um, mainstream media as well, to an extent, for the last week. Certainly last week, it was on the front page uh, of the FT for three days in a row. Um, and what really struck me, I mean, many things struck me, but in particular, I was thinking that I'd never seen a industry story or a PR agency really cross over to mainstream media in this way. So interested to hear both of your thoughts on that, on whether you've actually seen um, a PR story or, or a PR agency ever break through um, into mainstream media in this manner. Yeah, um, I, you know, I thought it was interesting to sort of think back on the scandals that I've covered in the business. And I think it's fair to say that very few of them have risen to the same level. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think of things like Fleischman Hillard getting um, caught bilking the Los Angeles city government, for mm -hmm. example. Mm -hmm. um, Edelman's problems in China, Ketchum's issues with um, Armstrong Williams and, and sort of pay for play. Mm -hmm. um, and um, none of those scandals comes close mm -hmm. um, in terms of outside scrutiny. Um, the only one that I thought was was possibly worse was Hill and Knowlton's involvement um, in the run-up to the first Gulf War 
um, in testimony before Congress, which later turned out to be pretty much fabricated out of whole cloth. Mm. Um, one of the differences then, I think, was that it was sort of pre-social media. Um, and so it didn't have quite the virality that this did. It hadn't created the level of outrage yeah. that this clearly did in South Africa um, and, and ultimately beyond. But also, this was a story where the body blows just kept coming, mm. right? So first you had the story breaking, then you had the complaint to the PRCA, then you had the report that was produced by the lawyers, then you had the PRCA verdict. Um, it, it just seemed like it, hammers kept dropping over and over again, whereas my recollection of the Hill and Alton story is that it was over, you know, almost on day one. I mean, yeah. everything came out at once and then it petered out. Mm. I can't think of anything of this scale, and I think for your phrase then about you know pre-social media, I mean, we're in a different time mm. now because the scandals that predate the social media era were all um, when agencies were dealing with influencers who may have been governments, may may have been bureaucrats, they may have been media, and any scandal was in the relationship between those intermediaries and the and the agency. And now, obviously, in the social media age, we are going direct to consumers, activists, people, and that, you know, lays a whole new layer of, re of responsibility on what it is we do and how we go about doing it. And I think what we've had with the Bell Posinger situation in, um, in South Africa is almost this sort of perfect storm hmm. um, of, of using tactics which in another era might have been to an informed audience but are into a, a you know a, a tinderbox yeah. of political and racial tension and um, so I, I, I can't think of anything of the scale of this. Yeah what's interesting you mentioned the, the chronology Paul it took a long time for this story to catch fire as well because I remember I think the first time I heard about it was towards the end of last year and when I read it I actually thought um, and this probably sounds cynical, but I kind of thought, oh, well, it's another Bell Pottinger story. It won't go anywhere because we've seen it before. Um, we've seen them, uh, we've seen them hit the headlines in a foreign country, mm. and then it just dies out after after a while because um, it's very difficult to actually find out what's happened when. Uh, a PR agency like Bell Pottinger is either working for a foreign government or a company closely affiliated with the government. And I, th I suspect with uh, the Hill and Knowlton story as well, some of, there was a, an element of that at play. But in this case, I think what I don't think anyone foresaw was, one, that South Africans would just stay at it, you know, and keep hammering away on social media. And two, that so much of it would become public in the end. I mean, and that is... You know, I think it's a welcome development. Mm. Right? You know, if 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 your work can't become public, then there's probably um, something wrong with the work, right? But it it illustrates in that way a couple of things that that I think have changed for the PR industry. And and I, first of all, I think David's point is absolutely spot on that that when you are going direct to consumers or direct to stakeholders or direct you're communicating without intermediaries i would argue you have to be even more careful and even more ethical um, because 
anytime you're talking to a journalist, there's an element that you both understand the game that is being played, mm. and it's your job mm. to get as right. much out of the journalist as possible, and it's his job to stop you. Um, I don't think any such unspoken agreement um, applies when you're going direct to, to the public. So, so that's one thing. Um, the second thing is that um, social media has given power to victimhood. Mm. So people who feel morally wronged, even if they don't necessarily have a lot of traditional power, have tremendous moral authority on social media, and so they can whip up support for their cause, whether they're, you know, I, I, there are things that happened in the business world 20, 30 years ago, what happened with Shell in Nigeria and, and, and the Agoni people, mm. um, that I just don't think could happen today because the level of outrage would, would be so great. And the final thing is, you know, this is a theme of ours for a decade or more. We are living in an age of radical transparency and eventually everything you say, even if there are only two people in the room, will eventually find its way onto the front page of the Financial Times or the Guardian or you know, yeah. whatever your local equivalent may be. Mm -hmm. How big of a concern do you think that might be for PR agencies? Oh, look, I think it's a, it's a big concern. I, you know, certainly all of the big networks, um, you know, Paul, you know, rattled off some of the sort of scandals or issues that the, have... The greatest know, hits. The greatest hits. Um, and any big organisation will know that whilst you can't know everything that's going on everywhere on every account with every person, you certainly can um, be in charge of a culture. You know, people need to know what sorts of behaviours are expected. And you can certainly drive through training that gives people the skills and the ability to understand situations that they're walking into with clients and then the ability to either deal with that themselves or escalate it up to somebody who is you know more senior and more equipped to deal with it so um yeah i mean i i, I wouldn't say you know that we should have any complacency but i would think that most agencies of scale will have had some form of uh, culture and specific skills training to deal with this sort of thing, but again, you know, Bell Posinger is a is a you know is a very welcome litmus test, and we can't be complacent. And I would be, imagine that everybody is refreshing and driving that back down through now. That, that mm -hmm. by the way, is another thing that makes this this crisis, I think, different from most of the others that I've covered. I mean, I alluded to Fleischmann, Hillard, and Ketchum, and and I can I can say with some confidence that what happened in both of those crises was very contra to the prevailing culture at those agencies. Mm. It was a genuine aberration. Mm. Mm. Um, this was not an aberration. No. This, this, was, this was, I think, something that was deeply ingrained in the Bell Pottinger culture. Yeah. Um, that just, I mean, maybe it went a little further, or maybe it was just business that they, the response initially, and you covered it, Arun, mm -hmm. so you can speak to this better than I can. But the response initially seemed almost dismissive, as if they thought it was just another story about, you know, them pushing the envelope or, or getting close to the line. Um, you know, I, I think this was, if not absolutely business as usual at Bell Pottinger, it was close enough to it to be indiscernible. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to say whether this is the worst thing that Bell Pottinger has, has ever done. Um, but just mainly, you know, honestly, because we don't know. I mean, they, they've worked for, for a number of 
of different organizations and, and governments. Um, but I think you're right. They thought they could just ride it out with the usual Bell Pottinger approach, um, which comes from Lord Bell himself, and I think from the culture he created at the firm uh, of uh, not, I mean, not not com- com- complete dis- you know dismissiveness of critics, but certainly a kind of you know we're Bell Pottinger. This is what we do. It's a bit of Millwall Football Club yeah. style <laughs> mentality yeah. there. Yeah, I mean, he, I mean, Paul, you wrote the other day about you know the fact that you can do good work for clients that are in you know slightly yeah. strange ethical situations or come from strange places, and I, I, I absolutely believe that. And Tim Bell used to be an incredibly eloquent um, advocate of that mm-hmm. point of view. I mean, I think we you know all saw the car crash interview he did the other day, where you know for a whole host of reasons his eloquence wasn't wasn't there then, mm. but um, that culture was certainly set in the firm that we can take on anything yep. and um, everybody has a right to an advocate in the court of public opinion and I agree with Paul that that's not always the case because the court of public opinion doesn't have the same disciplines and uh, structures and you know and professionalised legal framework that you can advocate in. Um, but, but this kind of ferocious, relentless advocacy, mm-hmm. you know, without regard for either the the facts or the consequences of the argument you're making, Mm. I I just think is an outdated, unsustainable model of public relations. There has to be more to our business than simply finding the most extreme form of of our client's view and then yelling it as loudly as possible in the hope of stirring up as much confusion, chaos, and uh, disquiet as we can. Um, I, I, it just it all just seems terribly 20th century to me. It does, and I think uh, there's almost this existential threat that we've talked about, and you guys have written about around around the industry that the fake news thing so far has really been a, a perceptual problem for the news media industry because that's how it's been positioned by people like Trump and and others. But actually, here's here is you know the PR agency industry with its hand in the fake news cookie jar, if you like, in the sense that we've been caught doing this and I think that's one of the issues that we are going to have to worry about longer term I mean is, is, is this a good thing or a bad thing for the PR industry well I think now the PR agency industry is in play in the fake news debate in a way that it wasn't mm. before Bell Passenger yeah we'll come back to whether it was a good or a bad thing I mean the one thing I'd say on this point is this was there's, there's an, there is an irony in that the kind of work that has brought about Bell Pottinger's demise was exactly the kind of work they were supposed to be moving away from. Um, you know, when first of all, when they 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 bought themselves back from Chime, um, and then more recently when Lord Bell departed, um, the the understanding was Bell Pottinger was, was was becoming a safer, more conventional corporate PR firm. Wouldn't be hitting the headlines for, for the wrong reasons. You, you probably both remember the 2011 story when they. They promised to employ the dark arts on behalf of a, a fictional client from Uzbekistan. Um, <laughs> uh, it was a classic of the genre. Um, but, you know, they, they were supposed to be, to be becoming, you know, they're a big agency. And I think the, the idea was that they would transition to become a, uh, a conventional corporate PR firm. And yet the kind of assignment that has essentially resulted in their collapse is exactly the kind of work that they've, they were best known for. And a really interesting question is, would this have happened if Lord Bell had stayed at the firm? 
um, because you know they they ended up staffing it the account with capital markets executives. Lord Bell took all of the political specialists away, and obviously he will tell you that. Um, it, well, he he says if he'd stuck around, he wouldn't have worked on the business. But if he had, and if he had had his people working on it, I wonder if the outcome would have been different. It doesn't really matter now, but mm. there's definitely an irony there. I think in that. It's quite hard sometimes for agencies to change their core, mm. what they what they do, their core character. And I'll use one, and I don't mean to make the analogy in any other way because it's a great agency, but you look at Brunswick. Mm-hmm. And Brunswick periodically talk about moving away from the capital markets, mergers and acquisitions, IPO kind of work, which is highly lucrative, into the more general corporate. And they do when the markets are quiet, and then as soon as the markets perk up again and those big fees are there, you can feel it. they all go back to their core. And I suspect that, you know, Bell Pottinger was, was the same, that the fees are so large for this kind of work that once one of these things comes along, you very can very easily go back to core what it is you do. Mm-hmm. But so that was one of the things that sort of slightly puzzled me about this was um, the, the number that I kept reading in the mainstream media was £100,000 a month. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. That's not, that's not a huge fee for this for for this kind of project, I mean, I you know, it's it's a it's a little more than a million a year. Yeah. Um, you know, there are plenty of seven figure accounts out there where you don't have to do this kind of, you know, where you don't go home feeling like you need to take a shower at the end of the day. Yeah. I just don't quite understand why a million in why a million in fees would be sufficient incentive to you know ultimately yeah. destroy your entire business over. Um, it 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 seems. Like yeah. pocket change. Yeah, maybe. I think a million is still appealing enough for a thirty million dollar PR firm. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's a big fee in South Africa, right? But yeah. but this was a. I suspect it was quite a profitable. Yeah. Yeah. As well. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that might have been core. There might have been other things. I mean, I I, I would imagine there was only things like research and other things yeah. around it as well. But everything, just everything about it smelled wrong, right? Yeah. I mean, this, yeah, you know, the, the, one of your partner's daddies brings you the business. He gets a referral fee. What, was he going to give it to one of his other daughters if his, the, this daughter didn't pay the referral fee? I mean, th- this is not how real PR firms do business, is it? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, it... it the story of how they got the business was a little tawdry. It always is, though, with <laughs> this kind of work. Um, yeah, and then, of course, the emails around the account were eye-opening. Um, and we, we assume they're all genuine now, I think. The, the, the Herbert Smith report uh, s- s- finds that they are. Um, but really astonishing. I mean, even as, as late as July... I when the complaint was made to the PRCA, which which also surprised me, and, and full credit to the Democratic Alliance in South Africa for actually considering this option, because you know I don't I don't think any, you know the the Sri Lankan opposition never did this, mm. and, and well, and you know, full credit to PRCA as well for acting on it and acting it on it swiftly, yeah, and putting in a fairly rigorous process around it, yeah, yeah. Well, I think they realised, but I went in to see them very soon after this. If, uh, and I actually said, um, do you think Bell Pottinger will be expelled? Um, and I, I didn't say it. I didn't actually ask. I, I said, well, given what's happened, you know, there's, there's probably a, a good chance they will be expelled. But even at that point, it seemed like a long way off to see Bell Pottinger, part of the fabric 
of London PR, regardless of whether you love them or hate them. And, and you know, Lord Bell, this kind of dominant figure in the industry, the idea of expelling them seemed way off. And to get from from there to here and from where they were in April to where they were in July, I mean, I, it's it's astonishing, really, the way this story has moved along. Um, and a cautionary tale, I guess, for a lot of a lot of PR firms, although I, I'd, I, I can't imagine there's that many that are at that much risk, I would have thought, from this kind of an outcome. No, and I wouldn't have thought that if there are people out there who are doing this kind of work that they would uh, currently be members of the PRCA either. I mean, there's, mm. uh, there's, there's a whole sort of grey market for this kind of stuff, as you know. Yeah, so that's the other thing, I guess. I mean, yes, they were expelled from the PRCA. It clearly had a big effect, right? All their clients fled. Um, so... The sanction does carry some penalty, as we've seen. I mean, well, mm-hmm, carry yeah. the ultimate penalty in this case. Yeah, and look, I mean, I I would hope that you know um, serious clients in the future do look uh, mm. for agencies which have the imprimatur of the PRCA or professional organisations in different different other markets and in uh, uh, regions as well. That you know, give them some degree of surety that there is some sort of checks and balances there, and that they're operating in a way that you know they can be proud of. Mm. An argument for Maybe something more robust, licensing or certification or. Uh, personally, I don't think so. I, I don't see how that can work. Um, I agree. But um, what what the PRCA have now just done is that they have shown that there is teeth, mm. um, and that in certain circumstances, them taking away, you know, their their membership is, um, if not a final nail in the co- in the coffin, then it's really going to affect your business and your future ability to operate. I, d- I do wonder um, how many trade associations, even after this example, will have the same level of uh, sort of courage and determination um, to act against a major member. Um, it, it is it's almost impossible to imagine this happening in the US without restraint of trade lawsuits and I uh, you know I just I, I think it would be mm. uh, I still think it's very challenging to mm. do this mm-hmm. um, which is again why I applaud PRCA for doing mm. it I think although conversely what do you think would have happened if they hadn't done it given what we've just said about this sort of perfect oh, story? I, I, I don't think they had any choice their, their own their own credibility and the totally. reputation of the PR industry would have been, I mean, th- their reputation would have been in tatters and our reputation would have been taking a yeah. much bigger hit. Um, I, th- th- there's no question in my mind that it was the right thing for them to do. Um, so a, a good week or a bad week? There, this, there seems to be a, divide, a, a dividing line now, I've noticed, in, in terms of how people are discussing this affair um, and there are those that that think well actually because the PRCA acted decisively expelled Bill Pottinger this is a good outcome um, for the PR industry and then there are those who perhaps looking at all the coverage see once again this kind of grey cloud lingering over the industry and I wondered is it is the truth somewhere in between uh, the, so the the best outcome for the PR industry would be for this never to have happened. <laughs> right. But yeah. given that it did happen, this was the best outcome for the PR industry that we could have hoped for. Mm. Um, which is that you know once it was discovered, it was dragged out into the sunlight, it was fully exposed, um, and the mainstream of the PR industry 
um, you know, from PRCA to Richard Edelman and his comments to the kind of coverage it's gotten mm -hmm. um, in mainstream media has put as much distance between the legitimate public relations industry and this kind of activity as it possibly could. Um, you know, I'd much rather live in a world where nobody who called themselves a PR person did this kind of work. But uh, given that we don't live in that world, Mm. This is uh, this is probably mm. the best we could have hoped for. And France and England, the PRCA have given us a really robust process now, and we've got precedent. Mm. Yeah. So that is, if you like, victory from the jaws of defeat. Yeah. Does it bother you at all, though, to see you know the headlines and civilians, as I like to call them, maybe again seeing yes. the PR industry in this through this y lens? Yes, it does, and. Um, you know, again, you've got journalists being able to frame mm. what it is we do in terms of dark arts and spinning mm. and all of that, that was sort of stuff. Part of the ferocity around the coverage. I yeah, felt. of course, of course, and you know, uh, but you know, uh, I don't think I still find it frustrating that we, as an industry, do so little to explain mm -hmm. what it is we do and what we don't do. You know, out there, you guys do it. You know, within within mm -hmm. the trade, and yeah, you've people like you've mentioned, people like Richard do it. Mm -hmm. But there are very few others who go out there and take a stand, and explain in 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 a way that business and wider society can understand what the role it is of public relations, what 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 contribution it makes to business in a general sense, and. And, and we, therefore, because we don't tell our story, our story gets told by journalists who are, you know, inevitably the most cynical when it comes to what it is we do because they see it from the receiving end of the old traditional part of the business. Mm. Well, there is a, there, there's an interesting point there, and, and this is particularly true of the UK PR market, I think, uh, because the people who are held up as ambassadors or, you know, who turn into the de facto face of public relations in the UK are certainly not the people that one would no. choose for that role. So if you, you know, if you look at the Guardian power list of the, yeah. you know, and it, it used to be people Max like Clifford. Max Clifford, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, who is in no meaningful sense a public relations no. practitioner. But, but, you know, if you yeah. asked most people in Britain to name a PR man um, or a PR person, I, yeah. I suspect that Max Clifford would be would top still be of their there. list. Yeah. And um, you know, one, of the, one, of, the, and one of the characters mm -hmm. are absolutely fabulous will probably be second. <laughs> yeah. um, but that's our fault yeah. as an industry because not enough people get out there and articulate. There's not enough Richard Edelman's, Colin Burns, people yeah. who have got a view and a voice and are capable and confident enough to be able to put it out there. Yeah. And that, that pattern that you just described in the UK, I see in every other market really? around, the re around, around this region and, and around Europe, that the media will go to people to talk about these sorts of issues, and they tend to be old school, they tend to be ex-journalists, they tend to be publicists, and they have a point of view on what it is they do, but they do not in any way, in any meaningful way, articulate or represent you know, the full breadth and importance of what we do. Yeah. And... What do you make this of the criticism I've seen of the PRCA? Um, because there seems to have been a little bit of a backlash um, about their, um, their behavior in terms of, one, expelling Bell Pottinger. I've, I've heard some people saying that they've somehow betrayed the PR industry and that they've put people out of work and that this is just, you know, grandstanding and, and for, for, for no benefit. I personally don't hold much mm. with that at all. I mean, I saw a lot of the Facebook comments, and I think there's a lot of 
uh, genuine concern for the junior and middle rankers mm. in Bell Pottinger um, uh, out there. But again, I probably subscribe to Paul's view and what, what you said, that it's not a bad PR market at the moment. It won't take them that long to get you know, new jobs mm. and roles, and I don't minimise how difficult that can be with people with, you know, with um, uh, expectations and financial commitments. But, I mean, what, what else were the PRCA supposed yeah. to do? Yeah, yeah look, I, I think I have, I have a sliding scale of sympathy, which mm-hmm. goes from total sympathy for support staff at Bell Partinger, um, and I suggested in an article this week that I thought it would be a nice thing for PRCA to do to set up a clearinghouse in the hope that they can help those people find jobs. Because, mm-hmm. you know, if you were a secretary or a receptionist or a janitor at Bell Pottinger, um, nothing that you did contributed to, to this problem at all. And the yeah. chances of you being aware of it were fairly slim. I have some sympathy for junior people. This is not going to look great on their resumes, but at the same time, I think good you know, first of all, those people have been saved from, however, you know, from from working in a corrupt mm. organization for mm. the next five years of their lives. They can go and get a real job and learn what real PR is. And uh, you know, I I know this. It's easy for me to say this. I mm-hmm. really do. Um, but um, but you know, I think most of them will be fine. Mm-hmm. And frankly. Anybody above that level knew exactly what they were getting into. If mm. you, you know, if you build your house on a swamp, you shouldn't be surprised one day to wake up and find that you're knee deep in mud. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Um, Tim Bell, you know, a, a legend of the industry, an awful interview on on Newsnight. Um, not really the way he should be remembered. David, no. perhaps you have. Some, some other anecdotes about him that, that, that of him at his peak rather than what we saw on TV. Yeah, well, I think in, in many ways, I mean, that, that was a car crash of an interview, and um, I don't know whether, what his health issues were that contributed mm. to that, but um, you know, in many ways, he was sort of, uh, despite the type of work they did, that, that, that he did, that the skill sets that he brought, he was, he was that new hybrid that we all now look for and talk about. He was an advertising man who mm. came into PR. He understood brand, he understood the idea of emotional selling and communication, and he also under, understood the, you know, the PR tactics, the more short-term, the more via, via influence and third party. So he was a very modern communicator in terms of the skill sets that, that he brought. And um, I mean, I've, 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 I have one personal experience and I found it very personable. I just, uh, just after the uh, Olympics, 2012 Olympics had been won. Um, uh, Sebastian Coe and Jackie Brockdoll, the comms director, pulled together a communication, group of communications people to advise them on communications issues as the bid then turned into the reality of bringing the Games uh, for 2012. And Tim Bell was sort of the grandee of this sort of group, and there were many of us much more junior and to him. And he, the way in which he deported himself at that, that meeting is what I've heard from a lot of people who worked for him. He was incredibly charming, incredibly inclusive, and he brought people in. And you were able to... Um, enjoy, if you like, this man of huge experience and wealth, but had uh, wealth of experience, but had the had the time and the and, and the manner to be able to, uh, you know, convene a conversation, mm. if you like. Yeah. So a sad a sad end, and, and and as as you had said before, perhaps unfortunately that might be how he's remembered. Yeah. That last interview. It might well be. All right. So moving on from Bell Pottinger, you can of course read all about that. Um, story on our website we actually have set up a whole new section 
devoted to Bill Pottinger because there was so much coverage of it. Um, but let's move on. And David, let's talk a little bit. I'd be interested maybe if we uh, get your views on um, the PR agency model now that hopefully you're free of any <laughs> legal constraints and you can tell us uh, with, a, with a, you know, honestly, um, what you see as the opportunities um, and, and where the challenges are. Because, you know, we're hearing so much about this is public relations time. And you were kind of at the forefront of that, being someone that understood integrated marketing better than most. Well, except um, that your successor in Europe took no time at all after he left his job to uh, start telling us all that public relations is dead. Are you going, uh, to, are you going to produce a tell-all tell critique of our industry now that you're no. liberated? No. Remember that the title for that was Trust Me, PR is Dead. Yeah. Um, no, not at all. Um, Look, the big opportunity is the brand opportunity. Uh, you, you've seen my analysis on this, that for every $1 that's spent by comms directors with PR agencies, $14 in fee equivalent is spent with creative and broader agencies by CMOs. And most of the big agencies and significant agencies in most markets have a corporate focus, and that means they focus on that $1. And we've been very good at that, and I think we've broadened out our services for that, we've deepened them, and we've got... In many markets now, a real bench of agency and in-house people who are helping companies make real policy and product and process change for the better and are doing great communications out of it. Mm -hmm. The biggest opportunity is obviously on that brand side. And you know, with social media came, came the PR agency's ability to get more of that. But the, the one thing I question, if you, you know, again, if you look at you know, your analysis of Cannes, I think there were 15 PR winners at Cannes and not one of them came from a PR agency. Mm. And you know, I've sat on the links and the spikes and the Asian Marketing Effectiveness Awards and I worry that the ad agencies are filling that gap or the creative agencies are filling that gap quicker than we're moving the other way. So they're still um, doing big emotional ideas, but they're now, um, if you look at the way in which they do planning and the way in which they do a creative brief, they understand now that ideas have to be newsworthy. You know, create, uh, you have to be earn-centric as well as social by design. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I, I just worry that we haven't moved quick enough to hire in the right kinds of talent, both in terms of the technical talent, the planners, the creatives, the studio teams, Increasingly now, you need the media planning and buying capabilities around that. But that more than that, the people at the top of most agencies, even agencies um, that uh, you know see their future much as I've articulated on the or big part of their future on the brand side, are still run by corporate mm -hmm. people who fundamentally, in most cases, don't truly understand how to talk marketing and brand. They can talk communications very well, and they can talk corporate issues, but very few people can talk to a CMO about marketing objectives and then the role that brand plays within that and communications objectives around it. So that would be my worry. Mm. Which, which worries you the most that advertising agencies have apparently found it so easy to move into our turf? or that we, uh, PR agencies, have found it so difficult to expand that turf? Oh, look, I mean, I, 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 B, I still think it's a real shame that, you know, that we haven't taken more of that. And, I, and I'm not giving up, by the way, and I, I still think, you know, if you look at, I was looking at your 
list of, you know, I mean, Weber Shamwick and the big networks have obviously got the creative thing sort of sorted at the moment. And in every market, there are boutique integrated agencies which have a PR center to them, which seem to be doing very well. So maybe maybe the future for our industry is not the big networks, but the medium size integrated with PR at the heart of it. Maybe they're going to be uh, more nimble for it. But um, I was, you know, I live in New Zealand at the moment, which if you talk to people like Terry Savage at Cannes, he's got this wonderful chart where he divides the Cannes Gold Lions by GDP or population, and New Zealand is the winningest, most creative market mm. in the world, apparently. By sheep. By sheep. <laughs> and if you go into, as I have done in the past, a wonderful guy called Nick Garrett who used to run BBDO in, in, in Auckland, and I walked into, into his office, and, you know, they, they have 20 people in that office of, you know, I think it's about 160, 180 people who you would recognise as PR people. Mm. And this was three years ago. They have fully come wow. that way. Now, not every market does that. New Zealand's a peculiarly integrated and advertising-dominated market, but they're getting there. Yeah. It's interesting you mentioned Weber as a network that's getting creative right. But Edelman's hired hundreds of creatives. And are they not a network that you think is making real big advances? Oh, no, no, absolutely. Yeah. Look, and, you know, what, what, what Jackie did and, you know, the, the talent that we brought in mm. um, has, has been, you know, amazing. Um, has it been hard, though? Because, you know, I think a lot of the agencies look at it and think, oh, my God, that just... That must be so difficult it to bring difficult. all those people in. No, look, it is it is difficult because the having you know creative directors. If you've got a good creative director, then they are by their very nature high maintenance to look after. You can't just have a creative director on their own. A, a creative director of merit who's going to win you the sorts of awards that will change the way in which the PR industry has been, been you know wants to be known at, at, at award schemes like Cannes will want a team, mm. and that team can be four or five people to control that creative director you're going to need bloody good planning you really mm -hmm. are going to need good planning that's two or three people there and then to make sure that you can hub all of that you've going to have somebody at the top who's going to be having the cmo conversations who's not a corporate person but is a truly brand person wow. that last link in the chain if you like there are very few of those people around from the pr yeah world i mean just a couple of edelman i i could well gail hyman at weber shanwick i think yeah. is absolutely perfect for yeah. that michelle hutton cornelia kunza yeah. uh jen cohen at edelman are all of that person who can actually do that but there are very few of them around yeah so then you think of the that the scale of that unit i've just described and the costs that come with that it's quite significant yeah to, to what extent do you think the holding company model makes this more difficult and I'm thinking of I'm thinking of a couple of things that I've heard in particular the first is that it's very difficult to bring on board you know whatever it is that mm. Ed Edelman 200 creatives 500, um, now, 500 creatives yeah. it, it, it you know doing doing jobs that essentially weren't PR jobs at all five years ago mm. um, in an environment where you have to hit a quarterly profit target and everybody has to be 100% billable from pretty much the moment they walk in the door and the second thing that I've heard is simply that there is um, pressure maybe too strong a word but the but, but the holding companies would be very happy if PR agencies stuck to their PR swim lane rather than veering off into you know what we used to call advertising agencies and I guess now we're supposed to call creative agencies as if that's something that excludes PR um, 
but, but yeah. the, you know, but stay in your box. Well, I mean, that certainly seems to have been the WPP model, and you can see the way in which H&K and BM have been driven into the corporate public affairs you know, box much more. But it doesn't seem to be the model at IPG, where you've got very mm. brilliantly successful brand networks in Golan Harris and Weber Shamwick who seem to have been managed to, to, to do that. Now, whether that's just because... You know, I worked at IPG briefly with Weber and I've been at WPP with, with Burson as well. And if you are an agency brand within a holding company that is doing okay, if you've hit your numbers for a couple of years, then people tend to not look at you. Mm. And you are afforded the ability to take some of the risks because they still need growth as well as margin. And they will, you know, if you've got eight, ten brands in front of you and you know you're going to have to deliver to a sceptical city or Wall Street, you're going to pick the ones very carefully that you're going to back and the others you're going to really button down. Mm. So if a PR brand ends up the wrong side of two or three years' results, they will be buttoned down until they turn it round. The difficulty in that, having been a manager in those circumstances, is that once the screws start to get tightened, you can do less and less of the new stuff and it's very then hard to break out of that cycle. Mm. Yeah, and, and, and it, I mean, that's a phenomenon we're seeing, I think, especially right now. You know, the quarter two numbers were yeah. a little worrying, right? And it does seem like, particularly at the publicly held groups, they are not necessarily investing in their PR agencies for growth. Um, you know, they're almost paying the penalty for this kind of horizontal... Horizontality. Yeah, for horizontality, right? Yeah. Because once you bundle everything together, then you treat everything the same, almost. Yeah, and, look, and I think horizontality works where you've got a client the size of Ford, but where it doesn't work, if you're the PR agency in a marketing services group and maybe you've got a lot of the traditional skill sets and you don't want to hire all of those people that I've just described because they cost too much, but you want to borrow the skills from an adjacent agency, doing that across P&Ls is next to impossible. I have mm. experienced that. It just doesn't happen. Yeah. It's not the network's fault. It's human nature with P&Ls, unfortunately. Yeah. And any, any thoughts in, on, the, on the independent versus publicly held kind of equation these days as, as you saw it particularly in this region um, yeah look there was major benefits um, of being part of Edelman because we you know, uh, you know Richard um, genuinely wanted to move the company to the forefront and was prepared to take financial risks and it was always much easier in an organization where all the shareholders mm -hmm. were in the business conversations about risk and the ability to be entrepreneurial were very short I mean one of the conversations one of the anecdotes I've gone on that was when our partner in the Middle East, Asdar, got bought by Burson Marstella. Yeah. Um, I was knocking around the Middle East looking for another partner, couldn't find anybody, um, and said to Richard, I think we need to start up on our own. I need to lose half a million dollars off the you know, ability not to make half a million dollars on the bottom line. And Richard paused for about 10 seconds and just said, yeah, go do it. Mm. And out of that, we built a brilliant business. Now, I could never have done that in a publicly quoted company, not because the CEO I would have been reporting to lacked the vision or the confidence, but just because of the operating environment. That said, I mean, I think sometimes there's real benefits for the networks. You know, they bring lots of, um, for Edelman or for any independent to move into a new market, you've got to hire everybody from scratch. Mm. Whereas you can move a brand, a WPP brand, into a new market, you've got often got office space, you've got HR, you've got finance, you've got legal, you've got the referrals of other clients um, so I think Paul you once said that people have complained about Edelman being able to operate at lower margins and everyone you said well that's not a bug that's a feature mm -hmm. and I think independent agencies need to use 
patient capital, bear in mind Edelman still makes 12 to 14% margin, just does it in a very different way. Yeah. Have to use that patient capital to make the most of their opportunity, whereas the brands that are part of networks will be using their advantages in their way. Mm. And actually, you've got a great presentation on this, on how to run a PR agency. <laughs> the ruthless is, application of common sense. There you go, that's the one. Uh, I find it interesting because wield margin as a weapon, as a competitive advantage, but you also say making profit. There's nothing wrong with that no. because I think sometimes you know you can go too far the other way and you see agencies that, uh, that, are, that are not really that profitable at all. But. Look, I, I, think, I think the phrase I used was that, you know, making margin is an, is a, is an issue of self-respect. Mm. You know, if you're not making margin, you're an NGO. <laughs> um, and one of the big problems with the PR industry is that we're so service-oriented sometimes mm. that we don't ask for the true value of what it is that we do. Yeah. We don't articulate it. We don't show the value against business or marketing problems. And then we don't ask for the right amount back. I think we've got better at that over the last few years, but still there's a long way to go. Mm. Okay. Well, tomorrow night you're getting the Outstanding Individual Achievement Award at the Sabre Awards, so we will see you then. Um, thank you so much for your time, um, both to discuss Bell Pottinger, the, uh, the tragic, I guess, demise of the PR firm, uh, and your thoughts on the agencies of the future. Paul, thanks very much. I'll see, you. Him, I'll see you as well tomorrow. You're well. At, at the conference. Early. Yep, we start at 8am registration I think yeah 8.15 is registration yeah okay. so we've got a busy day but it'll be fun uh, thanks all for listening we'll be back next week thank you very much you've been listening to the Echo Chamber brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by Marketeers Sponsored by March Communications, connecting innovation and people.